Good afternoon and welcome to Dismantling Risk and Realizing ROI with Data Archiving, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Harmony Healthcare IT. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. Send in your questions or comments as they occur to you in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. And we have a one-question audience poll that we'll get to later on if we can fit it in. Just a nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side mode, adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Tressa Springman, CIO and SVP of Performance Improvement with LifeBridge Health. Lisa Shubatowski, System Director, Interoperability at Hartford Healthcare, and Jim Hammer, VP of Operations and Product Development with Harmony Healthcare IT. So without any further delay, let's jump right into our conversation. Uh, Tressa, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Thanks, Anthony. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, As Anthony mentioned, I'm the Chief Information Officer at LifeBridge Health. I've been here for 10 years. Um, LifeBridge Health is a $2 billion in revenue integrated delivery network that serves um, quite a variety of populations in the Maryland area. We we are from the city of Baltimore all the way up to the Pennsylvania line in rural Carroll County. Um, We've got five hospitals and and growing. Um, We've got um, lots of physician practices. We have a joint venture arm that's got a number of partners across the care continuum, urgent care, physiotherapy, um, uh, life and fitness centers, um, home health, nursing homes, assisted living. If, If it's part of the care continuum, you'll probably find it in our portfolio. And um, as it relates to data archiving, clearly as the lead technology executive, um, there's a real important play here. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation today with my peers. Very good, thanks, Tressa. Lisa? Hi, um, I work for Hartford Healthcare. We have seven acute care hospitals, two behavioral health inpatient hospitals, about 170 practices, uh, none of these systems were ever on the same EHR. So um, I've been here for about six and a half years. Uh, my role is moving data. So uh, that includes moving from a legacy system to an archive, HL7 interfaces, Epic Care Everywhere, uh, file transfers, etc. Very good, Lisa. Jim? Uh, Jim Hammer from uh, Harmony Healthcare IT. Uh, appreciate the opportunity today, Anthony. And uh, again, look forward to talking to our peers here. And um, uh, Harmony Healthcare IT, we'd like to kind of frame ourselves as a health data management organization. Uh, really, anything to do with healthcare data movement, uh, whether that be migration, extraction, conversion, uh, and most of what we'll be talking about today, archival, which has been uh, become real popular over the last several years. Uh, and retirement decommissioning of applications has been a kind of a sweet spot for us. Uh, been with the organization since its inception uh, and uh, very much pleased to be with the organization. We've, we've had the pleasure of being uh, number one in class uh, in the industry space. 
uh, and and definitely uh, enjoy helping our customers with this particular problem in the marketplace. So look forward to today's conversation. Very good. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jim. All right. Um, describe some of the data archiving projects you have been involved with. Lisa, why don't you start us off? Uh, sure. So um, because we have uh, so many, so many systems, uh, we've archived uh, 33 systems so far with Harmony. Uh, that's a combination of large hospital systems uh, and uh, physician practice systems from based on, you know, we acquire a practice, they're on Greenway, we archive the Greenway, that type of thing. Um, so we've archived 33 systems so far in Harmony and we have 35 projects in flight. So um, all scripts, MetaTech, GE, GMED, Greenway, EMD, eClinicalWorks, Allscripts, EDIS, um, <laughs> Chartlinks, Flatiron, um, McKesson, Mysis. Uh, that kind of gives you all different types of systems. Oh, EDM, that's a document management system. So. I mean, do you think of it as is is a way to think of it when when you've done one, you you kind of get the feeling, or are they all so unique that they each have their own challenges? They're very. I think that they're extremely unique. Um, uh, in just like your customers are unique, your rev cycle um, department is maybe different than your HIM ROI users, who are different than your providers. Uh, so um, we've archived a transplant system that was unique. So um, I think, and each vendor is unique in the way they handle things. You know, Cerner versus Athena; those are, you know, two very different vendors. So uh, it seems like every we learn something with every project, and um, and and remember it for the next time. Mm -hmm. So, Tressa, you're laughing at me which I don't appreciate, but uh, come on, there's got to be something uniform about these things while they're all unique in their own way. Yeah, you know, I think what we've observed that's singular is the, the challenge in coming up with any rules of engagement <laughs> that help inform all of your archiving projects. Um, they are so very different. You know, um, I'm humbled. Lisa, Lisa really takes the cake when it comes to the heterogeneity and breadth and depth. Um, in our organization, there really um, have been two catalyzing business needs that um, put us on this journey. One is our um, high degree of merger and acquisition activity. And I think I'm hearing that as a catalyst in, in Lisa's organization. And then certainly rationalizing your application portfolio you know, going from four pack systems to a single pack system and um, really trying to make sure uh, that as you're replacing systems or implementing new technologies that you're able to um, have an appropriate method of handling um, some of those additional storage requirements. But um, it, I mean, it's a really highly evolving space and um, you know, I think we can find some lowest common denominators, but most of them are lowest common denominators that you've got to answer for your own organization. And as Lisa mentioned, the type of data and the type of stakeholder really um, provides a lot of influence over what those are. 
And so, Tressa, as as the, the CIO, I mean, one of your overarching goals is simplification of your environment. Is that right? So you want fewer systems, uh, few less variability, and that's all part of this, right? It, it's all about reducing complexity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, so honestly, I, I'd like to take it from the patient's view, which is we've already made healthcare hard enough with all the um, data silos that we've created. And so um, believe me, we have a lot of unique software applications where just being part of the whatever, um, but not satisfying the unique requirements of that business unit um, really have been trumped by a more best of breed approach. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, there, there are some economics and application rationalization regarding this, but um, I think more importantly to me, they're really two overarching influences here on um, archiving in general. And um, I would really be interested in what Jim or Lisa have to contribute. But from where I sit in the CIO role, there's the legal uh, and the policy adherence uh, as an organization that we need to make sure we're mindful of. But then there's also the transactional support. We might be addressing a policy requirement around retention but we also have to make sure we understand if there's a need for ongoing workflow support by the users themselves. So those are kind of two of the overarching influences on um, a data archiving strategy and environment. Tell me, uh, we're gonna go to Jim and Lisa in a second, but just give me a little more color around what you mean when you say ongoing workflow support. Sure. So transactional support, Lisa mentioned retiring EMRs. We've done acquisition of a lot of physician practices and, you know, depending upon your backload strategy, your conversion strategy on moving that physician practice, perhaps onto more of a system environment, um, just for continuity of care, you want to make sure that those clinicians have the ability to access that prior record. Mm. Um, That in of itself is a whole discussion that could take hours in terms of how is your organization landed on what to backload or not when you convert an ambulatory practice. And so, um, at least for us, the archival ability, a view only, a within the workflow link to access that without feeling a need to migrate all that data into the new EMR is all part of um, an essential transition strategy for these acquisitions. Does that help? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Jim, um, jump in anywhere you want there. Yeah, I would support what Tress is saying. We, we often are um, asked to help with what we kind of call a playbook. So uh, in the kind of heated acquisition and merger uh, market, like you mentioned, almost every, if you ask a provider, um, well, rightly so, they'd like to have all data migrated to the new platform, right? Um, The complexity and the time involvement of that, right, is usually cost prohibitive as well as time um, and efficiency, you know, prohibited. So the the beauty of an archive solution is um, you can almost hear the air go out of the room when you talk to a provider and show them the solution going, here's where the data is going to be. You're not going to lose any. So from a continuity of care perspective, you're a click away in a lot of cases from the original, you know, EHR, whether it be Epic Cerner or Production EHR, to the archive. And as soon as they understand that they're not gonna be losing any data, now real discussions can start to happen. And we like to support the group blame and it, it may not be necessarily sexy at all times, but real cost reduction going, you know what, I can get you moved over to your production EHR, stand up that 
uh, practice or clinic or hospital in a more timely fashion, but yet absolutely keeping the patient's care front of mind is, is, you know, is what we do every day. So Jim, we're talking about moving from the old to the new, right? So we've got the old system, we've got the new system, and we've got uh, an archive, right? So that's another entity. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to take what we need from the old and put it in the new. Some, some goes from old to new. The rest, I assume, goes from old to archive that did not go into new. And then at that point, are we also trying to delete information we no longer need to keep for compliance reasons or any reasons? Yeah. And eventually we want to shut down old because we want to stop paying for old, right? Mm-hmm. Is this a high level? Yeah, you, you nailed it correctly, Anthony. So um, from the perspective of usually the first pass is what, what are you going to migrate over to the EHR? And there's a lot of different strategies depending on specialties and approach. Um, first is, you know, what are we going to migrate over? Let's just say that's problems, allergies, meds, immunizations. It could be even, you know, don't bring over deceased patients. And I only want to go back two to three years, you know, from that perspective. Uh, that, that's a strategy. Some customers do a really minimalistic approach and go, you know what, I just want to bring patients so that my single sign-on will work. Um, and everything else is going to be active and available through the archive to others that go into a much more robust migration strategy. And like I said, I think that depends on, you know, uh, timeframes as well as specialty involvement. Some specialties lend themselves more to a migration. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, really everything's going to be held within the archive. An example of that would be, um, I, I can liken it to the, the days of the CCD and CCDA. And folks go, why don't we just take that and make that our retention policy? I tell you that's 35 to 45% of the data that's needed to be kept for retention periods. So uh, a lot of the legacy applications have things that might've been textual in nature that don't lend themselves to migration because your production EHR is looking for codified data as an example. So again, that safety blanket of having everything you need in the archive uh, and then selectively choosing uh, really arms, you know, folks like Tress and Lisa to determine in their health system what is the best strategy for a migration if they're going to go down that path. Lisa, what do you think uh, health systems know and what don't they know in terms of how to do this properly? So you have an idea, you, you have certain legal understanding of what needs to be done. When you bring in a vendor like Harmony, they're going to help you understand some things, I would imagine. You know, you had thought this, but they're going to say that. And it must be a, a helpful, eye-opening process to go to someone who, who helps you understand maybe why you were thinking of it a little, you should think of it a little differently. Does that make sense when you bring them in? What were those conversations uh, like? Yes. So uh, the eye-opener for me, um, so first of all, you know, Jim and his team are extremely knowledgeable and extremely um, helpful in that they've done, you know, 200 Athenas. They've done, or, you know, I don't know if that's the right number, but a bunch. So um, they've, you know, there's very few systems that are brand new. So, uh, and they have a knowledge base that they can go to. So this is certain millennium. Well, um, based on, you know, the size of this hospital, that'll take nine months or that'll take six months or whatever. And then I thought that it was a situation where you're taking a backup of the system and then restoring it kind of sort of in harmony. And, and actually it's, um, it, it relies more on how people use the system. So there's a, a process of uh, meeting with the 
subject matter experts. Show me how you use the system so that we make sure that we don't get bogged down in the detail or the metadata that's in the system and we are truly archiving what people use, what the legal, the definition of the legal medical record is, things like that. Um, and it's been, um, it's been very helpful to have obviously Harmony people and the subject matter experts. And by those, I mean the providers, the, um, the HIM release of information people, you know, all in all talking together and agreeing on what's necessary to be archived. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Very okay. good. Tressa, um, let's talk to, let's talk out there to CIOs. You're, you're a pretty large health system. Um, what do you think is the role of the CIO in a project like this? To what degree do you need to be engaged? You know, when do you hand things off? And give me, you know, who might you hand it off to in terms of a title? What would your advice be to other CIOs at similar sized health systems about how much they need to be involved in this on a day-to-day -day basis? I think if my peers don't have an archive, they will, if they're going to continue to grow and, and thrive as a healthcare system. Um, wow, that's a very thoughtful question. Let me, let me answer it on a couple of levels, I guess, Anthony. You know, my need is to bring governance to the management of this tool and process. As we have had our business strategies informing additional organizations joining us, um, I needed to um, surface and make sure the governance and purchasing and approvals occurred for an archive. Um, I needed to make sure I connected this very tightly with our security and privacy functions. Um, there is a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat that needs to occur here about what should you store or shouldn't you store. You know, whereas um, the ideal seemingly in the past was to save everything in this world of ransomware and e-discovery, that's not always the right answer. And yet a lot of our transactional systems, and this is um, no immediate criticism, they've not been structured correctly to allow you to purge or delete um, metadata elements, right? It's, it's all, um, you know, you're getting rid of the, the patient and their entire record as opposed to very prescriptive specific elements within that record. So again, a lot of governance, I've got to bring the right people to the table, whether it's um, our CISO in the organization, our legal team, um, governance, policy review, et cetera. And then um, positioning it appropriately in the technology stack, having an individual as I do on, on my team, like Lisa, who is understanding and involved in these projects on a day-to-day -day basis and making sure they're involved. You know, when we used to stand up new systems, we, we didn't need to have an integration expert at the table. And now we need someone who understands interoperability and what the choices are, because it's a whole nother set of questions and investments that need to be built in um, to that capital planning exercise and then the execution of a successful project. So again, I, I think, um, I've got to make sure that this is understood in the organization. 
as part of the technology stack. I've got to staff it appropriately. I need to make sure it gets embedded in our budgets and our governance. Yeah, and I guess uh, you have to make sure Lisa has what she needs to be successful. And, and Lisa, what it needs to be invited to the conversation. You know, it's it's amazing how many people just assume you're going to keep that old patient accounting system running forever. And and uh, um, you know, people implement a new tech stack and haven't even kept their interoperability or integration team. Um, involved, let alone at, at the actual planning table. You know, they end up with a catcher's mitt when when that aha moment occurs. Lisa, what do you need from, uh, you know, CIOs and, and those that individuals in your position usually report to? What, what, what would you want them to know? Here's what I need to be successful. Uh, the um, engagement at a senior level especially around providers. Um, I report to a CIO who's very supportive, um, obviously has, you know, all the, all the charges for these legacy systems come out of his budget. So obviously he has a financial vested interest budgetary wise, but um, I, um, if I can't get engagement from um, the leadership in the medical group, or if I can't get engagement from compliance or legal to to um, engage on projects and answer questions and attend meetings, because even though it may be a high priority for uh, for people who have to support these systems, it's not necessarily something that's high on their priority list. So having my CIO run um, run interference, so to speak, or escalate or have those phone calls uh, to uh, exactly share, you know, do you know how much this legacy system is costing our health system? You know, do you mm -hmm. know, you know, what the security um, uh, exposure is if we keep this, try to keep this system live? You know, those are the kinds of things, uh, the education and the communication that's really helpful from him. Jim, what do you need from a customer to help you be successful for them? You work with many customers, many different companies. What do the best ones do that allow you to do your job and serve them in a, in a high level? Yeah, that's a great question, Anthony. I think exactly what Tress and Lisa are talking about. They do an excellent job. Um, of a creating a governance structure, and then uh, when needed, the ability to reach out to them to expedite or escalate. And, and let me explain a little bit on that. So, as you might imagine, archiving for us typically we find ourselves the third or fourth position in priority in, in organizations in terms of priority, simply because why? I mean, again, production systems absolutely have to take priority. Plus, you know, patient-facing daily activities have to take priority. So we're always kind of a, at, at a secondary position to get staff and, and team members when needed from customers. Um, we, we pride ourselves on trying to do, uh, and again, based on Lisa's comment, we've, we've been there, done that. We've done over 500 systems. So we, we pretty much know the regimen. Uh, we try to do and employ best practices as best we can to minimize the, the need of using you know, our customers, staff members. So we'd like to think of ourselves as a partner and an extension of their uh, health system. And, you know, basically if we could be batches of them, we would be. Um, 
But in certain situations, we do need to reach out to get help from a certain SME or subject matter expert or, you know, how a provider might want to see certain things depending on how it was in the source application. So being able to reach out to that governance team for, uh, for assistance when needed uh, and getting that support is definitely, definitely beneficial. And uh, like mentioned, both Tress and Lisa set that up very well for our engagements, which, which a lot of our customers, we talked them through that kind of the onset of their program. All right, very good. Lisa, let's start with you on this one. What would you say are the most difficult aspects of these projects and any advice you have? Uh, I would say that <clears throat> the um, that the hardest projects are um, those around fetal monitoring and um, uh, neonatal pregnant women systems. Um, it's, um, it, those are very difficult. In general, overall with every system, the hardest phase of the project is data validation. No one has time. I don't remember how to use that system. Um, um, how many records do I have to validate? Um, what do I have to do? Uh, how long do I have to do this? Well, you have three weeks to do this. You have to do, you know, this many records and you have three weeks. Well, I don't have time. Somebody's on vacation. You know, data validation is, is tough. People, and then, you know, and people don't realize, you know, they think it's, um, it, it is like conversion where, uh, okay, we're going to convert three, our standard is to convert three years of notes um, into um, into Epic, which is our EHR, uh, when we acquire a hospital or a physician practice. So, but they still have the the legacy system. But when we're validating archive, that means that this is it. Okay, you have to validate that it, it's it's going to serve us for the rest of the time that we need to keep this data because that other system is going away. You're not going to be able to log into it to check something. And so communicating that, having availability from people um, is, is by far the hardest point part. Jim, what do you see people having the most difficulty with? Yeah, I think uh, Lisa kind of hits it on the nail there. A again, any engagement point where we've got to rely on downstream resources, um, they're just already strapped. So again, things we try to do to minimize, we've integrated on that validation topic. We are always trying to automate the best we can in that area, um, but we built into our application kind of a two-way interaction or communication tool set. So kind of past history was you'd send emails, phone calls, or spreadsheets. Uh, that's literally built into a, a, the application. So real-time communication back and forth between end users and our team. Again, trying to minimize that. That, that by, the, by the way, that's had in, kind of totality, the effect of shortening projects by two to three weeks easily. Um, and then hopefully a better experience. Again, we can't minimize it. And uh, as Lisa mentioned, uh, once you shut it off, it's gone. So it's gotta be done right. And uh, you've gotta have the right data. And, and for those in the governance team, it's kind of their last step to make sure that they're gonna sign off because that, that source isn't going away and they're gonna be left with the archive. Tressa, would you say that most of your work on this is at the beginning when you're putting those people in place, making sure everyone's involved, and then you just have to check in periodically to see if anyone needs help, if there are any 
issues is it mostly at the beginning that you'll have that success and if you don't do it right at the beginning you're you're really going to have downstream troubles you know that's kind of um i guess a personal focus of mine which is we um i i love to jump in and get things done but you can't short circuit the planning process when you're looking very broadly about putting a budget into place um, putting a team into place putting the resources into place um, you, you really need to anticipate the constraints, the prioritization issues, et cetera, that both Jim and Lisa have mentioned, because they're very real in a, um, you know, economically or resource constrained environment. And the reality, and I happen to also have operational oversight at LifeBridge of our HIM function um, and, and the leadership and team there is, you know, the reality of this is, it, it remains part of the legal record. And um, so the, the enormity of insufficiently planning and resourcing and providing access for people to do the right thing here um, practically is easy because they're not necessarily thinking about the fact that they're going to be dipping into that archive throughout the day. But from um, a risk perspective and an organizational um, ownership perspective and the commitment to the communities you serve because it's their data that you're you're needing and and obligated to take care of it's a big deal interesting lisa mentioned uh the idea of people you know saying they don't have time or, or it, they've got their day job and you're asking them to validate a bunch of data so that's one issue um you also have the issue as the cio when you allocate resources to something and then something comes up down the road some sort of emergency where those resources are pulled from the pro from that, which messes up project A. Project B came along, they got pulled off. How much of your job is managing that and making sure the system, human resources, everything under your purview isn't overloaded to the point that things aren't aren't getting done? Oh, you mean like COVID? <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. You know, I think as a leader, um, I need to be available on a continual basis to help the group and, and my peer executives at the senior team continually reassess our priorities. You know, we, we um, have an obligation to the board and to our future to stay on true north with our strategy. But as a leader, I've got an absolute responsibility to make sure that we're positioning our team for success. Mm -hmm. And, um, if that means that we're having to reprioritize various initiatives um, on a, a frequent basis, as we've had to do with COVID, then so be it. You know, I think a lot of my peers can speak to this really strange year we've been in, where someone who largely um, is in a role of strategy, such as myself, I've spent the last year in hand-to-hand -hand tactical combat, you know, um, being involved and, and aligned with my team in trying to solve problems as a peer, not as a leader. Um, some of our struggles, and I've, I've heard it with my, my peer CIOs, is we have, have been so involved on a tactical basis, um, we're worried about getting ourselves extricated from that and, and making sure we're not losing sight of our strategy. So mm -hmm. um, it happens, it happens all the time. And as a leader, um, you know, I'd be interested in Lisa's thought here, but I need to know when to hop in and help. And I need to know when to get out of the team's way and not micromanage people. 
that's a great let's let's talk about that lisa um what level of support involvement do you want nobody wants to be micromanaged that's the worst thing in the world right uh, so uh i have um i have a great boss and he um he, he sees himself as a servant leader um so he uh, he is there for me as I escalate, as I spoke about earlier about making sure we have engagement from the proper leadership. Um, the other thing is um, as we as we grow um, and um, the medical group seems to be insatiable um, that that we can't that sometimes I need to add people or I might need to um, add a consultant or, um, you know, additional project manager uh, because uh, the things could move faster if I had more help uh, because, you know, managing 35 projects all at once, um, you know, I, right now I have two project managers on that. And obviously you can have uh, multiple projects going on at the same time, but it's a lot. And so um, being there for me to offer assistance or, you know, I need someone, a consultant for three months to help with X, Y, or Z, um, that, uh, that kind of support is really helpful. Jim, I want to ask you about, um, your approach to your customers. Um, every good vendor, every good service provider has a way that they want things done because they've seen success with that, but that always runs into a lot of times, Customers may want to do this a little differently, a little differently, a little more of this, a little less of that. And I can be resistant to that kind of a thing because I know if I do it this way, I'm going to have success. But if I get pulled left and right, I may not be able to provide you with the success that I said I could. How do you deal with that as a vendor uh, when you're trying to deliver these services while not alienating your customer? Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, exactly to what we were talking about earlier, we definitely lead with best practice. We call it our process wheel. So re really repetitive, intentionally project plan so that once our customers get through one or two, they kind of know the drill and expect the next steps. Uh, really the duration and of the complexity of the project really drives the phase uh, durations, but really the project plan in of itself is really the same. Um, however, we also do definitely listen to our customers. We've invested heavily into, uh, very proud of the program that we have in place around, uh, we've got kind of outside of our operational team, we've got an independent team that will check in and do quality checks with our customers on a percentage of our customers and basically to listen. And it's both from a qualitative and a quantitative scale. So we, we, look, we listen for what can we improve? And, oh, if we need, to, we need to change in a particular type of system or data domain, as an example, uh, we've learned some of our best and improved in some of the best ways possible. Some of the features that we've added, definitely we listen you know, through that same structure uh, and get just incredible feedback from our customers. And, uh, and we're willing to make those changes. So while we like to be kind of, you know, again, we like to follow the core process. We know it works. We're always open to listening and uh, and making changes to improve the efforts. So great um, question, Anthony. The other thing that um, that Harmony is really good at and on some of our projects is, um, you know, we have to rely on our vendor that when we say we want this data, you know, ship it over to Harmony, that they're giving us all the data. And so Harmony's been really good about 
um, saying, hey, did you know that you're missing X data domain from this data? And then that allows us to, because they know that that data should be there. And that allows us to go back to the vendor and say, hey, um, maybe you missed something here. So that's been, um, that's been helpful. All right, very good. I have an audience question. Uh, we constantly face the challenge that archiving requirements aren't included in replacement or M&A projects. And generally, the time from system replacement to archiving is too far extended to properly budget and resource. And also, loose SMEs from the original system by the time they are needed on the archiving project. How do your organizations handle this? Tressa, do you feel like you can jump into that one? Yeah, you know, um, that's an insightful uh, question there from the audience. Um, I would say we've learned along the way through mistakes we've made and have landed ourselves in those very specific situations. Um, let me talk more. Um, I think in system replacements, we've gotten better because there's a tremendous amount of IT focus on those. Um, on our merger and acquisition activity, my suggestion there, and it's, um, believe me, been the end result of my team of direct reports making sure that I am hearing loud and clearly um, where um, challenges end up cascading down to them when, when we're going through one of these processes is to ensure that I am very, very actively kept at the table of due diligence. So, um, you know, I had to pretty much fight my way to that table early on, um, but I do know now that the legal and, and the senior team understand um, through the School of Hard Knocks the, the relevance of that. And so in the due diligence process of these M&A activities very early on, I'm making sure that I'm um, bringing my peers along on the vernacular about whether it's retention for subject matter experts, whether it's really pulling forward um, archiving activities. And um, in the due diligence process, there are a lot of um, legal team members involved and, and they understand that on the retention side. So um, that's how I would answer it for M&A. And, and that's where I think we've had um, the most challenges because to the um, audience, the, the question posed by the audience, um, sometimes those actual activities extend over a period of a number of years. Lisa, thoughts? Um, the, uh, the loss of the SMEs uh, is, is huge uh, because sometimes, um, I, I've been doing this for six years now, what I find is that people actually, some of the older people actually time their retirements around the system retirement. Um, we had a example, we had a hospital go live on Epic on December 1st, 2020. And, um, and the HIM director, um, she, you know, we were gonna allow people to sign and update charts until uh, March. And then we were going to pull the data for archive, and, um, and that's a Cerner Millennium system. Well, she retired at May March thirty first, you know. So she's gone now, and so you know there's still some other people around, but you know she timed it that way. It, you know, it's a kind of a, a natural ending spot in some people's careers, I guess. I don't know, but um, it's it's a huge problem to make sure 
We've called people back from retirement on a per diem basis to do QA. Um, you know, there's making sure that we get the um, the commitment about who's going to QA the data, you know, five months from now when we kick off the project. So that's what we do now. You know, we get them provisioned um, for the Harmony validation environment. We, you know, we make sure that uh, leadership commits those resources at the very beginning. Very good. Jim, any thoughts? Um, yeah, I think they, they both said it well there. Um, uh, the other thing we can do is sometimes we've augmented team members where they just simply can't find the SMEs. Um, a lot of our teams got the equivalent experience of SMEs and can step into that role. Uh, we can also augment validation efforts. Um, a lot of customers don't take us up on that simply because sometimes, you know, again, it, you're, you're making a decision to shut off the application. It's not coming back. So the, the feeling is my team internally needs to have that control uh, and sign off. Um, but, you know, that is an, an opportunity as well. Uh, when those kind of pinch situations happen and you don't have internal staff, uh, we find ourselves augmenting team members in that way as well to help. Jim, uh, you know, part of the theme of this webinar is reducing risk uh, and doing this properly. Tell me your thoughts about that, about, you know, why and how these projects can reduce risk. And if you don't do them right, how risk increases, how, how do you do something like this wrong? Have you had to come in in rescue situations where someone either used a different vendor or tried to do it on their own and they finally threw up their hands and said, help? Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely, and sometimes we, we say we're archivers of archives. Um, we've had to go in where uh, there might be a niche player that can do ambulatory practices, let's say, but can't do the large acute systems or don't have experience and can't get through the, you know, they've bitten off a little bit more than they can shoot, as an example. Uh, there's a lot that goes into these projects, as Lisa mentioned, and it, it's a longevity with the right talent, the right skill set. It's uh, and a lot of healthcare IT experience. Um, so, you know, again, I would, as we look at it, I'd warn somebody who says, hey, we can do it in a week and I can do everything. Look at references, talk to people, because that's not the case in the marketplace. Um, and that would be the risk is getting into something and not getting the data that you really need. Uh, what a disaster um, for everybody involved. Um, and that's the last thing. I, I wouldn't wish that on any customer or partner or vendor for that matter. It's, it's just not a good experience. All right, uh, Jim, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, my question would be, um, you know, Lisa and Tressa, what, what's the most overlooked or what would you consider as the most significant areas of risk encountered when you leave records in an aging uh, application or applications? Tressa, why don't you jump in? Yeah, you know, I'm happy to speak to that from experience, Jim. Sometimes um, due to either just pressure or um, politics, it, we have been in a position where um, a physician practice has just been adamant about leaving a system in place after having migrated in its entirety. And um, it, this isn't a specific circumstance, but I can tell you that um, we have had situations where data breaches have occurred and um, in those circumstances, because sadly, so many of us have experienced this, um, we, for example, uh, let me talk about a specific example. We understood a data breach had occurred. 
but no one got any ransom um, note. There were just a few encrypted files. It, it was really, um, after all the forensics were said and done, it was not clear what happened. And so our organization took a very, very conservative notification process and approach and said, look, we're not sure or not. So we're gonna just let everyone know that something happened, even though we still aren't sure. Mm -hmm. um, because the forensics were so inconclusive. Uh, my punchline on this is we did notifications to all of these patients that may or may not have been impacted. Um, this specific physician practice had gone through four different sets of ownership over 10 or 12 different years. We sent uh, notification letters to people who didn't even recognize our parent name, the practice name, the physician names. <laughs> Um, and, and believe me, it, it created more anxiety and, and more um, management than we ever anticipated. You know, we thought we were doing a very good thing on broad notification. And what we realized is that there were a lot of um, handoffs on change of control. And, and again, these, these folks didn't even know who we were and, and couldn't relate back to why we were contacting them. So there is a keeping it too long here. Lisa? Security, definitely. Um, you know, when you, when you terminate your support contract, you're not updating the software. Uh, there, um, people still wanna use it. Maybe it's not AD enabled. Um, maybe old, um, old users or former users, the credentials aren't canceled. Um, it you know the the browser it's it depends on is out not supported anymore and has um, security risks um, for physician acquisitions we don't even put their legacy system on our network uh, we isolate it um, you know security is for these systems um, becomes a problem the lo the longer you let it go on so definitely security. All right, very good. I'm gonna. Uh, we're running low on time, short on time. I want to give everyone an opportunity for a final thought, either a piece of advice, lesson learned, any parting word of wisdom for our audience. Lisa, let's start with you. So um, my biggest um, advice, I think, is to, uh, in addition to getting your validation resources at the beginning, as I said, is um, to make sure that. Uh, it's not just your um, regulatory and uh, policy attorney that is on your team, but also litigation. Um, how the you know the the data has to be able to stand up in court. Uh, so how you produce data, what um, to be able, have to be able to answer to how Harmony works. Is this really? Have you messed with the data? Is it a true representation of the? of the system that was used at the time the patient was being treated. Um, litigation attorneys really need to be at the table. And um, I would make sure I would just, and make sure you archive your audit trails. Very good, Tressa. You know, my observation, Anthony, is um, like many other things, this isn't a really sexy topic. And so it's super hard. Um, I. My ears um, perked up when Lisa spoke about 
we have decided we will backload three years of notes. Um, it was shocking to me the lack of industry guidance, whether it was the legal industry, um, AHIMA, um, HIMS. You know, you can identify what thought processy um, other organizations have gone through on their conversion retention strategy. Um, you'd be amazed how many um, providers in this ecosystem can't believe that doing this is so hard that they just can't believe it. And, um, you know, so my observation is that there has been surprisingly poor industry guidelines around this. It remains a good opportunity. And um, again, it's an area where we can all do a better job by learning from each other, but it means we've got to get out there and, and have these conversations and um, very much appreciate you and um, health system CIO letting us have this discussion today because this is the type of thing that catalyzes um, having our industry move forward on these types of guidelines and standards. Well, thank you, Tressa. Jim? Yeah, I, I'd like to second Tressa's comment. Thanks for the opportunity here. Anytime we can talk about the topic, people get educated. Um, I would, I would, it's an easy topic, I'd say to folks, you know, starting their journey, do your homework. Um, every solution in the market's not the same. Uh, we've all touched on it. Things like, you know, workflows. Um, you'd imagine that every archive vendor is going to be able to do an ROI workflow and do it efficiently. That's simply not the case. Um, security. Things like we've invested a, a significant amount of capital in high trust certification. There's vendors that really you'd be kind of scared as you look at what their solutions offer. Um, so it's it's again price and speed is important. We we you know we preach that every day internally to our teams as well. But quality, security, uh, and peace of mind, and, and truly having workflows that support our customers' needs. Uh, is paramount. So the great news is there's folks like Tressa and Lisa in the market that uh, definitely can give their experience and uh, reference to. Um, but again, that homework piece would be, I'd, I'd underscore that as you do your, your looking. Great. Excellent. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our fantastic panel today, Tressa Springman, Lisa Shubatowski, and Jim Hammer. And I want to thank Harmony Healthcare IT for making the conversation possible and our attendees for joining our webinars. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you.